Welcome this morning. It's so good to see all of you. Um, This week has not gone as I expected it to, but that just seems to be the case most weeks when you have an almost two-year-old and are 35 weeks pregnant. Um, We're in this super fun phase of life where my daughter brings home every possible sickness into our house, and it seems like we are sick more than we are healthy right now. So this week we all had the fun time of coming down with the stomach flu all at the same time. Um, Super fun when you're pregnant, let me tell you. Um, Thankfully, I had baby boy checked, and he's doing really well. In fact, he was dancing along with the music this morning, but um, he's been really shaken up in there this past week. Um, But all that to say, I wrote this lecture yesterday, which is super unlike me, and I usually practice several times and did not have an opportunity to do that, so give me grace if I have to read more than I would like to. Um, but in leaders' meeting, they were talking about having an illustration in your week that somehow relates to the lesson and praying that the Lord would give you one. Well, um, <laughs> this is not the illustration I would have liked to have, but just the thought of when you feel really awful, when you are just really really sick. You just feel completely awful. When you finally feel well again, you feel so good because you realize just how bad you felt. And now it feels so good to feel healthy again. And as I was thinking about that, I thought that is the message of this passage today. Paul is going to take us through a lesson on sin to where we just feel really awful We realize that we are all living in sin, but then when he gets to this message at the end of hope and justification, it feels so much better when you realize where you've been. So before we dive in today, let's pray. I certainly feel like I need it. (laughs) Lord, all we do want is you. This morning, just... Put me aside, Lord, and would you speak instead? God, I pray that you would be in our midst, that we would feel you speaking and tugging at our hearts. Lord, I pray that this passage would open up to us anew and afresh today, even if it's a message we've heard before, that you would speak it new to our hearts, God. That you would remind us just how far you went for each and every one of us because you love us just that much. We love and praise you. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so before we look at our passage, which honestly was quite a long one today, I wanted to look back a little bit at where we are in Romans so far. Because I think the past two weeks we've gone through a couple of phrases that are really important to our passage today. So week one, we looked at the phrase, the righteousness of God. And I told you that this phrase is going to come up again and again in the book of Romans, and today is no exception. What does this phrase, the righteousness of God, mean then? Week one, we asked this question, what about God does the gospel reveal? And Paul says, the righteousness of God. Through the gospel, we come to understand how God can be both a just judge and a savior of sinners. Martin Luther, who misunderstood this phrase at first, says later of it this. He says, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God 
is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. So the righteousness of God is his righteous character seen in the cross of Christ. It is his saving action for us. And it is where he bestows upon us his righteousness, even though we have not lived it. The righteousness of God is grace, it's mercy, and it's infinite love. So that's the first phrase I want us to grasp today as we look at this passage. The second is what Kathy went over last week, and that is the wrath of God. Kathy explained that the wrath of God is extreme emotion. It's grief, it's pain, it's not vengeful or wicked, but it's a holy response to something he loves being threatened, fellowship with us. She connected it to those of us who are moms. And if we are a mom, we've felt this in one way or another, and I can certainly relate to that. We want to protect our children at all costs, and anything that threatens them brings about this holy wrath. John Stott puts it this way, God's wrath is free of caprice, spite, vindictiveness, or temper. It is his perfect, holy displeasure at evil. So I want you to hold these two phrases in your mind today as we look at this passage. And today I'm going to divide our passage into three sections, since it's a big one. The first is verses 1 through 8. And here Paul imagines this discussion that he has, counteracting certain arguments he believes might come up because of what he is teaching. Then the second section is verses 9 through 20, where he deals with the truth of our sin and what it really is. And finally, we come to this closing section where he answers the question, but how then can we possibly be justified in verses 21 through 31? So first, let's look at verses 1 through 8. In these verses, Paul seems to imagine some sort of argument in his Jewish readers. They might be feeling like the very foundation of Judaism is being undermined, God's character and his covenant being undermined by what Paul is teaching. For this, he uses a form of writing called a diatribe. In this kind of writing style, he reconstructs an argument, and it's probably a real argument that he's already heard. One commentary I read said that it's even possible that Paul's argument here is with Paul himself. Paul, you remember, was a Pharisee when he was Saul. And these kind of arguments would have certainly come up in his mind as the unconverted Pharisee. Here we might imagine Paul the Christian and Paul or Saul the Pharisee in debate with one another. So he brings up here four main objections. Objection one, Paul's teaching undermines God's covenant. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. God chose Israel out of all the nations, and he made a covenant with them. So they're asking now, what advantage is there? Much in every way is his response. But it's a different kind of advantage. It's one of responsibility. 
They were entrusted with the very words of God. The whole Old Testament scripture was committed to their care. They are the custodians of God's special revelation. What an immense responsibility and immense privilege. Objection two. Paul's teaching nullifies God's faithfulness. This comes up in verse three and four. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. So even if every human being was a liar, God would still be true because he is true to himself. Objection three, Paul's teaching impugns God's justice, verses five through six. Here he says, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? The argument here is that the more sinful we are, the more glorious the gospel seems. Therefore, our unrighteousness somehow benefits God because it displays God's character all the more brightly. How then can God be just in judging us? The truth is, however, if God did not punish sin, he would cease to be God. He would destroy himself because he would undermine his righteous character as the righteous judge. Paul goes on further in this argument with his next objection. Paul's teaching falsely promotes God's glory. Here he says this. Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil, that grace, good may result. Their condemnation is just. Here he continues this argument with the idea that if my sin enhances God's truthfulness and so increases God's glory, then shouldn't God be pleased, even grateful? Aren't we doing him a service? This time, unlike the others, Paul doesn't even justify this question with an answer, for it doesn't even merit one. Evil never promotes the glory of God. Throughout this whole section, Paul is seeing the character of God is at stake in these objections. So he is reaffirming God's covenant, reaffirming God's faithfulness, reaffirming his justice, and finally, reaffirming his true glory that's promoted by good and never by evil. So now we come to the middle section of our passage, verses 9 through 20. And here Paul shares some striking comments about sin. He starts off this section with these words, which at first almost sound like a contradiction of the beginning verse. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under the power of sin. So it almost sounds like he's contradicting himself here from verse 1, where he assured that there is advantage in being a Jew. But here we have to understand what benefit or what advantage he has in mind. Instead of privilege and responsibility like he refers to in verse 1, 
Here he's talking about favoritism. They are not exempt from judgment. They are all alike under sin. This should strike us. This is a strong statement Paul makes here. Paul, the previously righteous Pharisee, is now grouping himself among the worst of sinners. Remember chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul now is saying he has no advantage. They are all alike under the power of sin. Paul was dedicated to holiness. He was a Pharisee, and yet he sees himself as no better. So does this idea make him look down on people? For Paul, it does the opposite. It rehumanizes people for him. Those people who you might not want to give the time of day to, you now realize you are no better than any of them. He says no one is righteous. No one seeks God. No one understands. No one does good. In fact, he goes on to point out the pervasiveness of sin and connects it to parts of the body. Throats are open graves. Tongues practice deceit. Lips spread poison. Mouths are filled with curses. Feet are swift in pursuit of violence. Eyes looking in the wrong direction. Every part of our human condition, every faculty and every function is at the mercy of sin. Sin is total. Here he gives a head-to-toe examination of sin. No part of us is left unaffected by it. Keller puts it this way. Criminal robbing, murdering people, and moral religious Pharisees. As different as they look on the surface, they are all expressions of the same radical self-centeredness that is sin. This is the doctrine of total depravity. We're all corrupted by self-centeredness that causes us to sin. Stott puts it this way, Sin is the revolt of the self against God. It's the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. It's a fun message, isn't it? (laughs) We all almost always come to Christianity with this idea that it should work a certain way. If I do this and that for God, then he will do this and that for me. But here we see we are all spiritually lost. We are all in the same place. Verse 19 says this, Now we know 
that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Keller says you need your mouth silenced. No excuses. No plan B. Shut up spiritually. No more, I know I did wrong, God, but... This makes me think of that sign over on Lone Hill. You know, that sign from that church who leaves a little message for you that sometimes is really convicting. Um, Just like last week or the week before, it said, don't ruin your apology with an excuse. We have to get to the point where we realize we have no excuses. We cannot receive the cure for sin unless we realize that we cannot find it on our own. We have to get to the end of ourselves. That is the only way to get out of this radical self-centeredness of our sin. Keller went on to say, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But most people don't have it. Verse 20 is what one sermon I heard called the crescendo of this passage, where we see that we just cannot get right before God by ourselves. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So if you think that your slavery to sin is a small thing, you will find it difficult to rejoice over the next part of our passage. But the truth is this slavery to sin is no small thing. But now we come to the end of our passage, which starts off with these glorious words. But now. Thank goodness for those words. But now. Here is the bright light of mercy. A bright light which we cannot fully celebrate over without first understanding this first part of our passage. We are all guilty of sin. We are all without excuse. The wrath of God is upon us. This is enough to draw anyone to despair. Is there any hope for us? But now... I'm going to read this section because it is the light at the end of our tunnel. It is the bright light of redemption and justification that I think is just so important, and I hope that you truly hear it today. Verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have sinned, And fall short to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, He had left their sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus.
here is that phrase which is just so important, the righteousness of God. The righteousness that justifies us, that puts us right, that free gift completely and utterly undeserved. As Stott says, it is a free gift offered to us as a free gift only because it has been obtained at infinite cost by God through Jesus Christ on the, car- on the cross. It is only free to us because it was so costly to him. Can you truly celebrate it today? Here is the story of God's outrageous rescue of us. The source of our rescue is God's grace. The initiative is all God's. We are justified freely as a gift. We contribute nothing. This was God's idea, God's initiative, and he did it because he loves us. He did it because in his wrath was his pain, his sorrow, and his grief over the loss of fellowship with us. He did it to be both just and justifier. That is what God did for us. That is the message of this passage, and it answers this fundamental question, how can we possibly be accepted by God? Through the shedding of his blood, through his sacrifice, and not through anything I could ever do. What a powerful passage. It's a message I'm sure we've all heard before at one point or another, but for me, I heard it afresh and anew this week. I was grateful for it afresh and anew this week. So how do we apply it? Well, John Stott pointed out three things that the cross promotes from our passage, and I liked them. It said, the cross promotes humility, unity, and purity. The cross promotes humility because there is nothing left to boast about. God has accepted us as a free gift because of the costly sacrifice he made. We deserve only judgment. We are indebted to Christ. The cross promotes unity because there is no discrimination. All have sinned, and God is the only way to salvation. The cross humbles us. And it levels us. There is no distinction at the foot of the cross. And finally, the cross promotes purity. If we received this justification as the greatest gift, and if we understand what it cost him, then we are so grateful to Jesus that we want to live the rest of our lives obeying and serving him. May this message also promote within us humility, unity, and purity. Well, the song I have to close us today just felt like the only response I could possibly have to a passage like this. And it's called Gratitude by Brandon Lake. Let's listen to this song together as we close. Let's pray. Father God... We give you all we have. Just a meager hallelujah. But Lord, we lay it at your feet. We are so grateful for the but now of our passage. So grateful that we couldn't do anything to save ourselves, but that you stepped in and saved us. 
God, would you help this passage to humble us, to unify us, and to purify us. Lord, we give you our days. We give you our heart. We give you our all. We are so grateful for all that you've done for us, Lord. Would you be in our midst this morning as we discuss in our groups this passage? Would you um, speak to each of us? And may it just be a wonderful blessing as we fellowship together and learn more about you and seek your face. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Your love is strong, it is furious. Your love is sweet, your love is wild, and it's waking hearts to life. Your love is deep, your love is wide, and it covers us. Your love is fierce, your love is strong, it is furious. Your love is sweet.